Hello. Hello. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Yes. This week, Black Hearts in Battersea by Joan Aiken. Yeah, we've got a sequel. Ow! <laughs> and there's a rogue wolf afoot. This is the second book in the Wolves Chronicles by Joan Aiken, which we started covering at the suggestion of our wonderful listeners. Um, We had not come across these books when we were young, um, maybe because they are written by an English author. Maybe our libraries poor apportioning. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) But this book was published in 1964, so it has been around for a little while. The first book that we covered, The Wolves of Willoughby Chase, um, recommend checking out that episode if you're new to the series. Also, though, I don't think you have to read the book in order to enjoy a discussion about it. It is very, it, it is a romp. Yeah. Capital R, yeah. romp. Definitely. There are lots of little twists, but like the plot is pretty, you know, comfortably predictable. So I don't think you will be upset at hearing some of these spoilers yeah. <laughs> before reading it. I agree. But in, in either case, it's such a fast read. I was obsessed with this book. I wish I had read it when I was a kid because it would have been one of my like top 20 favorite books. Yeah. So, and it, it has it all. It reads it very fast too. Be- it's a it's a really quick read. Yeah, yeah. Partially because the energy keeps going and going like you never get bored. It's once you're on, it's a nonstop ride. <laughs> Absolute. Yeah. Breakneck pace. Um, and Joan Aiken actually said that with this book, she wanted to explore how it enriches a book to have uh, quote, a lot of the relevant action takes place, take place before the story opens and quote, yeah, that's, okay. <laughs> which is very much the case here. Yeah. And which I do think is a great way to approach, especially that this is a younger reading level than a lot of the books we cover. It's more middle grade children's fantasy. Um, but to approach it that way, just makes the story a lot more fun because you yeah. don't have to deal with all the tedious exposition. You just get to like pick up pieces as you go along of things that have already happened off page. So I, I liked that approach. I I like it a lot. Um, it's definitely prevented me from continuing on with a lot of books when mm-hmm. there is just so much uh, non-action, non-interesting setup. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's yeah. like, you know, I've never made it more than a third of the way through Dune. <laughs> <laughs> So like I mentioned, we do spoil every book that we cover. So run along and check this one out. There's an ebook widely available. Um, shouldn't be too hard to find. Also, don't be confused by the like children's dramatization version of like four books from the Wolves Chronicles um, that have been very clearly excerpted because it's very short, but that is available in audio form. Excerpted. Madeline almost got... Yeah, that, no, I said it to Grace. I was like, this, I don't understand how this is only four hours long and it's like five different books. She's like, yeah, no, that's not it. <laughs> uh, we do discuss 
how the publisher chose to package and promote each of our books. Um, and this one, the ebook didn't have a cover associated with it. So we looked up the first edition cover, um, which is a very classic patterned background of, uh, I mean, what do you, a salmon background yeah. <laughs> um, with, yeah. with black ink little swirly crests atop it and then very funny little line drawings of some of the main characters and a wolf too that looks so derpy they're all just kind of floating (laughs) across it i am obsessed with this i love this cover like i would get a tattoo of the little dido who's floating up please do She's so cute. And then there's also a detail of their balloon, hot air balloon, and um, very elaborate cabin flying through the sky. Yeah. Because of the balloon in that portion, I kept thinking the name of the book was Black Hearts Over Battersea and then getting confused and being like, but the good guys are in the balloon. I had a really... This is neither here nor there. I'm just an idiot. I had a really hard time retaining this title. I had to search Willoughby Book 2 a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny because it is a fun phrase to say. Battersea is also one of the primary places in the narrative mm-hmm. so it makes sense that it would be mentioned i don't know black hearts is maybe somehow not fitting it feels like we're talking about pirates yeah my brain but we kept are saying... just talking about like truly evil monsters <laughs> so they do have black hearts indeed i also it, it's just a sorry go ahead I also thought it was about pirates. Like, you know, my brain immediately made that association with the title, and that's why I thought it was Blackbeard. <laughs> Blackbeard and Battersea? Yeah, and then I'd be like, well, that's not it. Blackbeard's not in this book. <laughs> Blackbeard and Battersea sounds like he's on a vacation, like <laughs> leaving his pirating ways behind for the summer to see what happens next. Blackbeard and Battersea. Uh, yeah, that's great. But yeah, the brief cover description, because I also can't find any great um, images of it. So it's a little bit mushy, but I I think more covers should be done in this style. Dido's personality alone is captured so well. She's got her little arms crossed. She's standing in like a potato sack like dress and looking kind of inquisitively up at the viewer. I really like Dido. Dido's amazing. The listeners who recommended this series said, you know, I, I get it. Start with the Wolves of Willoughby Chase. It's the first book, but you got to wait for Dido to show up. And then she is the protagonist of many books following. So I will say oh, right here, okay. right now for everyone, okay. she didn't actually die at sea, which this book suggests. I mean, this book says that she died at sea. And I was I was worried that it was true because of what the fortune teller told her, that she would give up something great that like she didn't even realize she had or someone or other. So I thought maybe that's her life because she's a child and she doesn't quite grasp her mortality. <laughs> Right. But I imagine that instead it's some other circumstance. Yeah. Maybe she's going to be, you know, marooned on an island and by lose herself like or years something. of her life. Yeah. Which, which is a bummer simply because uh, Dido should always be speaking aloud because she's her so dialogue and slang is <laughs> magnificent. There's, there's a lot of slang in this book that I just had to be like, okay. 
<laughs> Lord, that means. We'll we'll get into the, some specifics later. I saved some passages for us to investigate. So is it supposed but, to be like Cockney? Yes. Okay. She's supposed to be like a sort of Cockney street urchin. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, although she does live in a in a house with a family, but what a family. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what let's family. let's get to it. Let's learn about the Twites and everyone else along the way. Yeah. First, let's just say the conceit of this series is that there's an alternate history of England in which wolves come out at night and hunt people um, just everywhere in England. Uh, Yeah, that's all. Go ahead. It's like an Ocarina of Time where the skeletons come out at night. Exactly. Well, and then I guess the other alternate history piece is that King James III stayed king, didn't stop being king, and King George's line is trying to overthrow him. Okay. I'm not going to be good at the like political intrigue. But like I open up. It doesn't really matter to our purposes or to the book's purposes. Like it's just kind of a part of the plot. Yeah. um, But it doesn't have wider reaching ramifications. Yeah. Um, So in the beginning of this book, uh, Simon has come to London and he's looking for Dr. Field. Um, I think Dr. Field was in the last book as well. Yeah, he's in Wolves of Willoughby. Yeah. yeah. Um, So he is an MD, but he's also uh, working on his painting degree. Um, And uh, he wanted to like get Simon to come stay with him in London. And he thinks that Simon would be a good... uh, artist as well so he wants like basically to just like come be with him and they can study together because he knows that Simon doesn't have any family or background Simon lives in a cave yeah yeah he's like a wild man (laughs) I I really yeah it was fascinating to see a character who we if you listen to our Willoughby Chase episode um, we loved Simon big Simon fans but to see someone who I thought of as kind of like a sprite like a pixie um, head to London and like become embroiled in a, a political system. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, so when Simon heads out to London to look for Dr. Field, he's got his donkey, he has a kitten that like just someone mentions it at one point, and then it pops out of his bag. He's like, Oh, you have a kitten in your bag. <laughs> Yeah. Which was fun. He's always trying to feed his kitten. <laughs> yeah. And his donkey, Caroline. And he goes to the address that he should have uh, for, like, he... It's where Dr. Field is boarding. Yeah. The room renting. And people keep trying to, like, distract him and mislead him on his way there as well. It's very mysterious. Um, and I was really into it because it was very, like, absurdist if you don't yeah. know, like, yes. what... <laughs> going on i really think the whole book functions as a kind of spoof of victorian orphan novels yeah and that's why a lot of those moments are so heightened yeah in their absurdity yeah it it was like very funny this book is very funny uh, it made me laugh genuinely yeah (laughs) Yeah. not in like a weird way but in a like oh that's that's exceptional humor (laughs) yeah so he Finds the place, despite the attempts to waylay him, he finds the place where Dr. Field was supposed to be staying, and it is owned and inhabited by the Twites. 
um, who are some some tough people, except for uh, Dido, who is the youngest daughter. She's a child. Um, Dido's the one who first greets him and brings him into the house because the Twites are out. They left her behind because they do seem to do that a lot. They don't give her nice things. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't like her and like her life, her life's pretty tough. Yeah. And Dido is saying, I don't know anything about a doctor field. Simon's a little suspicious of that. Um, because he like this is the address that he was given, and he can also recognize uh, the scenery from uh, the letter that Doctor Field sent him. So he and knows it that smells like turpentine on the top floor in the room where he was staying. Exactly the and room paint. that's empty and open for a different tenant now. Uh, so Dido uh, gets to go on a ride on Simon's donkey. She's already like. Taking a shine to him. She wants to keep him around, which makes sense. She doesn't have a lot of fun or nice things going on. And so Simon takes her up on the offer to board. He is roused in the middle of the night by the angry twites. Um, He gets accused of being picked uh, by the Mr. Twite. And Mr. Twite is just like screaming and flipping out. And then he's very drunk. Yeah. Mrs. Or as Dido would describe it, Broski. Broski. He's Broski. <laughs> and Mrs. Twite is also just like, ah, like, girl, she let you come and stay here. Ultimately, they let him stay because he shows them his money, basically, and says, like, look, I'll, I'll pay. Um, and uh, then the next day he has to go out to one, find a way to make money and two, go to the art academy where he was supposed to go and study with Dr. Field. Like that's the thread that he's following. And uh, they, it doesn't happen right at this moment, but both of the twites also completely deny any existence of uh, Dr. Field. And Simon is increasingly suspicious so he goes to the art academy and Dr. Furneaux is this tiny little gnome of a man. <laughs> Smells like garlic and coffee. And he looks like a shrimp, I think has, has been said. Uh, he's, I think he says he's not more than four feet tall and mm-hmm. he has massive whiskers that like just branch out from his head and he's a very energetic and intense man. Uh, Simon watches him critique a uh, Justin's art who comes in and produces like a, I think he says a critique of Justin. (laughs) One Justin's art. And he's just like being like, no, this is terrible. (laughs) Dr. Perno is uh, try something better. And when Simon had showed up to the academy, he's seeing this, uh, like Justin, because Dr. Furneaux said, go draw on the wall. Go, yeah, show me your skills. Yeah. I'll know mm-hmm. what to do with you. Yeah, so Simon is left alone with Justin then because Dr. Furneaux has gone through all his pictures. He's like, these are terrible. You're a hack. Try again. <laughs> and then leaves. Just an interesting way to teach someone. <laughs> One school of thought, (laughs) (laughs) education, maybe. 
And, and throughout, he's saying things like, with your family's lineage, you should also be a talented artist. So Simon realizes that he's the Duke's heir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he gives Justin some pointers and Justin draws the cat that Simon brought with him. Uh, and uh, Dr. Furneaux likes it better um, when when he comes back and sees it. And he also, it, like, finds great promise in Simon's artwork and he puts two and two together and he's like, Oh, he probably helped Justin with those cat Mm -hmm. pictures. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, that's an actual way to teach someone (laughs) other than just yelling at them. (laughs) And then the way that Simon is able to make money, which I was worried about at first because I was like, he's going to run out of his money really quick. And then the twites are going to like murder him and dump him in the river. But he uh, meets a blacksmith whose name is Mr. Cobb, uh, whose shop is close to the school. And uh, then the blacksmith like takes him in as far as his um, labor goes. And the blacksmith is really chill. His wife is really chill. And uh, Simon lends them uh, his cat as a rat catcher, I think. Um, yeah, that's what happens to the kitten because it just goes away yeah. at that point. I also thought it was funny that there's just like a cat and then the cat has nothing to do with the story, but it's just kind of like around. <laughs> I think it's a hearkening back to Simon's role as a sort of animal sooth speaker yeah. in the first book since he lives in the forest. Yeah. At this point, he goes to the castle. Because he saw Sophie. Yeah, and he found out that she's the Duchess's um, servant, her lady's maid. Mm-hmm. And he knows Sophie from the last book. They were at the hor- a horrible orphanage slash poor house yeah. together yeah, it was pretty when they brutal. were children. And they like helped each other like, survive. It's called like Gribbles or something. (laughs) Goobles? Yep, Gribbles. It's another moment where it's just like, yeah, of course, the like poor abandoned baby house is called Gribbles. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, And on his way to the castle, he sees uh, Sophie getting like assaulted um, by a guard or a footman. I don't remember exactly his role. and the Duke sees it happen as well. Uh, Simon doesn't realize he's the Duke at the time because he's like flying around on top, uh, like on the side of a building, on like a painting sash, uh, which I also, uh, another great absurd moment where there's suddenly just this old man like, get away from her. And then Simon, yeah. and then he's like, come play chess with me, Simon. I'm the Duke. <laughs> the Duke reminds me so strongly of a character from. Breath of the Wild and also Tears of the Kingdom, which has now been out for one week. This isn't a spoiler, I promise. But Robbie, the eccentric scientist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Because he's interested in uh, new discoveries of all types of technologies and fields. Yeah. And uh, Simon, he goes into the castle as well. Um, Because he comes back to play chess, and when he's there, he sees a, uh, it's just a big painting that's very dirty because it was hung above a fireplace, and uh, uh, also one the the guy smoked a lot near it, so it was just covered in soot. It was filthy. Um, But it was painted for 
the parents of Justin, supposed parents of Justin, uh, and Dr. Fields. His parents died. Yes. So that's why mm-hmm. he's living with the Duke and Duchess. Yeah, and it's why he's the only heir um, because yes. the Duke and Duchess don't have any children. Simon sees it. Uh, Duke says Dr. Field was restoring it. Simon says, oh, okay, I can finish restoring it. Um, and uh, once he does uh, remove the muck, there is a child there um, painted into the painting that bears a striking resemblance to both Simon and Sophie. Um, Who, come to think of it, also look alike each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, someone, I think the Duchess at one point is like, you might as well be brother and sister. And I was like, oh, glad there hasn't been any romantic stuff. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I think about in these kinds of yeah. stories. Because <laughs> they clearly have a lot of affection for each other, but it's it's very much, it out even be before they know that affection. they're siblings, it, it, it's still very much friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you've been through grubles with somebody, you know, you're bonded for life. Yeah, that's quite a trauma bond. Um, so then a series of unfortunate events happen to the Duke and Duchess and Sophie as well, because she's always with them. Um, first, they're at the opera one night and their box catches fire and the door was locked. Um, so pretty quickly, that's you know, like, oh, someone tried to murder all of them, uh, but they are they don't take it that seriously. It's more like they see it as an accident, um, which I'm yeah. sure there were a lot of fires in uh, <laughs> yeah. everywhere in London at this point. Yeah, we're, we're in like the early 19th century. So we're still point. using yeah. gas lights and everything's mm-hmm. made of wood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not good, my friends. Not good. Um, but Sophie is able to use uh, the Duchess's like embroidery. She makes uh, a rope and then she makes a slide out of it so everyone can like get out of the balcony. So she saves all of them. Uh, and then it happens again uh, that she saves them when they're traveling on a barge down the river and suddenly the barge is sinking. Because they'd come to find out there was a massive hole in the side of the barge, which is hard to call an accident. Yes. Uh, which she, again, wraps the embroidery around. Yeah, yeah. She uses <laughs> and it all to of stop the art the students jump in the river and help carry everyone to safety. Which is so much fun. It, it honestly... That, that, like, roving band of art students just know. being like, oh, <laughs> throw your paintbrushes <laughs> down, boys. Swinging we'll off at chandeliers you. and... <laughs> Even at the end, at one point, the um, Monsieur Fernot says, we uh, must go to, he speaks with like, a, it's written like a really ridiculous French accent. Uh-huh. Um, and he says, oh, we must go to uh, paint the wolves. And then someone's like, um, but, you know, when you're just painting a wolf, like the wolf tends to kind of rush you and then your water gets everywhere. And they frame it you. as like, on a practical level, it's just hard to paint a wolf. And then he's like, I have it. Half the boys will paint the wolves. The other half will fight them. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so funny. Fantastic. I love their brand of chaotic good. 
Um, Incredible. It's really, really fun. And they, yeah. Like through the power of art, London will be saved. Yeah. They all just like leap into the river and they pull everyone out. um, And then they end up getting invited to the manor. uh, And they go to show them the painting. That Simon and this actually, fixed. sorry, quick sidebar. This actually ends up becoming an annual scholarship where the yeah. Duke pays for a student's year of um, tu- tuition at Monsieur Furneaux's school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, despite being members of the bourgeoisie, they do seem to be socialists of a kind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, let's see. They're at the castle for their lunch, for their banquet. Oh, I remember. They try to find the painting because they're talking about how fascinating it was and that the girl in it looked familiar. It, and I... (laughs) I definitely related a lot to the line, um, like all of them jolly to like f- to have this diversion from their work, like threw themselves <laughs> yeah. into it with energy. And it, I, I that happens all the time at my work because there is it's I work in homeless services. It's a pretty intense field and there's always just like wild stuff coming up. That's an emergency and staff are yep. always so like. I'm going to get away from my computer and I'm going to come right, like, exactly. help deal with this. <laughs> I can stop working on this report and do something that's like going to be, a, you know, more immediately like gratifying. Exactly. Solvable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a, it's also fun to like have that community with your fellow workers. Of yeah, like, for sure. Yeah, oh, oh, like we can, we can do this. <laughs> Put down your paintbrushes. <laughs> Yeah, they are at the castle and having this grand meal and the artists are just like flute flapping all over the place. And then they're like, oh, we're going to show you this painting that Simon and Dr. Field restored. And they go to find the painting and the painting's gone. And then they're like, okay, uh, artists... Help us find the painting. And then they literally are like, there's one that is swinging off of a chandelier because he's trying to like look at a piece of I'm wall. I'm just looking so hard for yeah. the painting. I had to. <laughs> the chandelier falls. Like, it's very, very good. It's so funny. Um, so it's it's now obvious that there are nefarious doings. Um at one point there's a gross guy named Mr. Buckle yeah. who is a tutor who's like pretty mean and seems to be involved in some sort of going on with the twites as well. Yes. Um and uh, Simon finds out just cuz he's living with the twites uh at one point he has to go into the cellar um to get coal because Dido is sick and he wants to heat milk for her. Um, and it's full of guns. It's full of guns, full of gunpowder. And he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> and he finds... They call them picked clobbers, which also puts the pieces together with Mr. Twight calling Simon a picked right. at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so he he sees that and then he overhears Buckle saying some like nefarious stuff. Um, and he doesn't... Oh, there and there was one piece when after he finished restoring the painting, so it's before it went missing. Um, Buckle looks at the painting, looks at the child that looks like him, looks at Simon, blank, like 
scared look on Buckle's mm-hmm. face, and Simon's just kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah. So then Simon gets kidnapped. Yeah, they, they go to the fair first, which isn't, like, super plot relevant, but it's really cute yeah. because Sophie makes Dido a dress because um, Mrs. Twite said that Dido couldn't go to the fair because she didn't have any clothes fit to go to the fair in, which is... Or even that we're warm enough is what she said because the weather is turning. So it's like a combination of you don't look nice enough and you can't be outside. Yeah, versus Dido's older sister, Penelope, has like a number of dresses and clothes. So they're just like intentionally neglecting this young yeah. girl. Yeah. Um, and Justin goes to the fair with them as well. So Justin kind of like gets put in the friend group as opposed to before he was just kind of this like sad weasel of a boy. <laughs> and he was very like rude about Dido and called her trash essentially yeah. mm-hmm. for being poor and neglected. Which is great because it turns out that Dido is actually his cousin. Um, because so at this point... Simon gets kidnapped. Um, Mr. Twite hits him with something. I don't know. He used a lot of words that I was like, (laughs) Mr. Twite has a flowery vocabulary. Yeah. Um, And is drunk. (laughs) Yes. And Simon wakes up uh, in pain uh, in the belly of a boat. And then Dido and Justin both pop out. So it's pretty quickly like, oh, okay, this isn't going to be like a sad tale. Like there's <laughs> yeah. it's already got his crew here. Um, and they're like this, Dido's like, I didn't realize they were going to kidnap you. But when I saw it happening, I really wanted to come with you because uh, like you're fun. Uh, she also sent a letter to Sophie telling Sophie what happened. Um the letter is maybe the funniest part of the book to me. Yeah. After we, when we talk about Dido, I would like to visit the letter in full. Yeah. And they're on this ship because it's affiliated with uh, the Hanoverian cause and they want to get rid of Simon because Simon's a problem for them. Um, and it's crewed entirely by perpetually smashed sailors. Um, which makes it not very difficult to like get around and steal supplies and whatnot. Um, And then one night during a really terrible storm, uh, there's also a fire in the ship, which seems like it might've been started by Dido because she left a candle in the hold when they got Simon out. Um, But it's what, what ends up happening is the ship breaks apart um, Simon ends up is like escaping on some flotsam and he washes up on the shore of an island. Um, Justin washes up as well and they are taken in by a Mrs. Buckle uh, who it turns out she ran away with the captain of the boat but then he was annoyed by her so he marooned her on an island. <laughs> And he brings her supplies every so often. But he, so that she doesn't yeah, die. but he floats them on a boat because he doesn't want to talk to her. <laughs> and even funnier, when they didn't know what to do with Dr. Field anymore, they also put him yeah, out there. So Dr. Field is on the island too. I wish I had an island to literally put all my problems on. <laughs> they could just figure it out together. Um, Start their own society. (laughs) So Mrs. Buckle starts expositioning and she is like 
you know, I married Mr. Buckle, Justin, you're our child, Simon, <laughs> you're the actual heir to the Duke's seat. Because he has the um, the tuft. Yeah, no, it's because he has like a, a white patch he has a of tuft hair. under yeah. his hair, a white tuft. Yeah, and He's that's... the family tuft. That's the proof. Um, it's like the family birthmark, literally. She's like, oh, but there was another child. There, Like, there was a... You have a sister. And Simon was like, well, I think I know who that is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they, Dido doesn't reappear. Um, because the others escaped from the shipwreck after the ship literally tore in half um, yeah. Titanic style and sunk. They're all on pieces of Flotsam and Dido escape, didn't show up. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Simon looks really hard for her um, because he really cares about her, um, but she doesn't turn up. And then they have to go to the next phase of their adventure, which comes when... Um, I think it's when other sailors show up, right? They're there to drop off supplies, but also pry Mrs. Buckle and Dr. Field for information. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Field um, doses them so that they are knocked unconscious using some soporific seaweed that he found. <laughs> and then they just leave them on the island. So the problem island has been swapped. Yep, yep. Now they're the problem. I was your problem. Now you're my problem. <laughs> yeah, they're they're the macaroon ones now. Uh-huh. So they make it back to the Duke and Duchess and Sophie, um, who they had been on a separate mission because they were going. Yes. Um, they escaped and then they were going to see Sophie's foster father. Um, but that, and they were also looking for Justin. They thought that he might be at chipping hall. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where they were headed anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they don't find that. And her foster father is dead and there's thieves in and around the house. Um, she, a really shady guy comes up and is like, I'm his nephew. I'm his nephew. <laughs> I'm the highwayman. <laughs> and, the, and then they just steal the horses. And, and book. Um, so Sophie is able to grab um, her, basically her inheritance and like her stuff from her foster father from a, a knot in a tree. Um, but first they have a encounter over the night with wolves and Sophie again uses the tapestry to, it's like a very magical tapestry, clearly. That embroidery is the baddest lady of the book. Yeah, I think so. I yeah. And it keeps the wolves from coming into the house. <laughs> well, and they also hit them with croquet mallets yes. and croquet balls. Yeah. Uh, so they don't get eaten. Um, and then once they're setting off again, Sophie cleans her bracelet, which was in the bindle that they pulled from the tree that was her foster father's. And in doing so, reveals that she is uh, Simon's sister um, because it has the crest on it. And I think it also has her mother and father's names on it. Yes. Who are not Justin's mother and father. <laughs> And Justin's really been like struggling with all of this. Um, But he also, it's funny because his class changes so radically. And I feel like there is 
like in among the humor, some commentary on the way that he is viewing the other people, depending on when he thought he was the next Duke. Mm -hmm. And then when he realized that he's a buckle, yeah, (laughs) yeah, which, yeah, we can talk about after this summary, but it was just kind of fascinating. They they all meet up. They head back to the they castle. They get in together. a hot air balloon. Yeah. Uh, which is the only way they can get back quickly enough before the mince pie ceremony. Yeah, which they have with the actual king. <laughs> yep. And which they've found out the bad guys are planning to poison the titular pies of. Yeah, because they want to kill the king because they're Hanoverians, so they have a different. And they also want to install Justin as like a fake duke, a, a <laughs> puppet. A yeah, yeah. To, to that end. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, when they get back, uh, they're like all getting set up for the ceremony. And uh, Simon goes, How does he meet up with Mr. Pict? Or Miss, um, not Mr. Pict, Mr. Twite, sorry. He sees a man wearing a luxurious beard and fake mustache uh, playing the same horrible music that Mr. Twite yes, was always playing yes. in the street and is like, dude, <laughs> hello, hi, why did you kidnap me? Why did you knock me unconscious? <laughs> and Mr. Twite's just be like, ho, 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 <laughs> just hanging out. And he reveals to Simon that uh, the castle is going to blow. It's going to blow up, explode. The things he says in this brief conversation, he's like, we've filled the castle with explosives. I'm leaving my family. Make a grave for Dido. (laughs) (laughs) Just what is happening inside your brain? And he's like, I hate everyone so much that I actually rigged the explosives for five o'clock instead of nine o'clock. So they (laughs) all die too. All my co-conspirators will die and I can start a new life. And he's like so breezily telling this to a child. And I mean, I guess it works out for him. Yeah. Uh, Who knows where that man ends up? Poor Dido. Her parents are the worst. Yeah, their parents are so bad. Um, So Simon runs back to the castle. Um, The uh, He's the like town guard or whatever, or the castle guard is distracted. Um, but he's able to be like, okay, we're going to get 50 men, uh, as soon as you can muster them. Um, but the, and doesn't he drop in in his hot air balloon? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the art students get called in as well. Um, because they're always, they're always available. (laughs) Like they, they love doing this stuff. Um, and Simon gets there just in time. He's able to, it's like 20, 10 minutes before the explosion. He's like, everybody in the balloon. And they all <laughs> lump in the balloon, including the king. Um, and uh, uh, Buckle is on the roof and he starts shooting arrows at the hot air balloon. But so. No, he has his blunderbuss, doesn't he? It's a gun. There's, he's putting holes in it. Yeah, and, putting in holes. And Sophie is like, ah, not so fast. I have a magic tapestry. And she puts the tapestry <laughs> over the holes. And then the balloon is fine. Um, and Buckle, like, I think it's like he was like aiming to make another shot. And then the uh, entire castle um, is Exploded. obliterated. <laughs> <laughs> it's dusted. It's gone. 
Everyone in it was dead. Um, but luckily the art students were not in it because they were fighting outside and the Duke, Duchess, Sophie, Simon, and the king, the king of England, are all floating away in their in their hot air balloon. They're all safe. Yeah. I mean, everything it, it's a happy ending for all of the heroes except for Dido, who I was really expecting to turn up as the book was ending. Because Sophie said, like, I expect we'll see her again, but I guess that means in a future book. I think that's just foreshadowing that yeah. she's out there, she's okay, she's not going to be back in this book, but stay tuned for the further adventures of Plucky Dido Twite. Yeah, I would like to do another book from this series. The um, next one, In the next one, she's the protagonist. This was such an enjoyable read. Oh my God. It was magnificent. Yeah, it was just great. I needed this so badly. I I just, my spirits, you know, I'm, I'm finally leaving Pennsylvania in a month, um, which is exciting. But the last couple months have been tough as we like near the end, but it's not quite here yet. Mm-hmm. Now that it's a month away, it's like we're starting to pack and prepare and it feels like it's going to be okay. Yeah. But to have Black Hearts and Battersea drop in and just give me the little kick in the booty that I desperately needed. I couldn't I couldn't have asked for a better book to read. Yeah. It's it's I, very good. Strongly recommend. Like I said, if I had read this when I was a kid, it would be absolutely one of my favorite books. I would read it over and over again. And in that same interview with Joan Aiken, um, about making action take place pre-book. She also said that she, uh, quote, gave it an elaborate kind of Dickensian plot because I think children like complicated plots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it is part of their general passion for rules and games and ramifications and organization. And then she says later on that she also wanted to create an experience that would be fun for kids to reread. Mm. And that like really spoke to me because I deeply loved to reread my favorite books and they were all very similar to this one in that there's tons of details. There are all these little connections and intricacies that as a kid you delight in figuring out. I mean, as adults, we realize pretty immediately what the actual plot is going to be as soon as we've met all the main characters. Like it is predictable. It is like orphans and long lost family members and rightful heirs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's all of these really uh, used tropes, but they're being deployed in such a funny way. And they're also being heightened and spoofed, like we've been saying at yeah. the same time. Spoofed. So like, the the joy of reading it, I think, is pretty transcendent and like it works at every age level. Yeah. And and I absolutely would have been obsessed with rereading this. Um she she said that she wanted it to work for like slow readers and fast readers. Um and well, this was sweet. She said, I came across a psychological explanation recently for this. It is a wish for security, mm-hmm. a wish to be sure that the story still exists, is still there. Um, and she also talked about children rereading this, not even consecutively necessarily, but like skipping to their favorite parts. And so then there were these really amazing, you know, action packed sequences. And, and for me, like the little feasts and like we were talking about the painting students coming to the rescue. <laughs> 
It's so good. Yeah. It's just I like it's it's hard to even name my favorite passage and reading a book that was written in this time period and is a little bit older than what we usually cover. Um, it really took me back to like some other forgotten books that don't fit the podcast and that we won't cover. But like when we were growing up, um, our next door neighbor's mom, Mrs. Moore, shout out to Mrs. Moore. Mm. Um, she gave me a box of really old paperbacks that were from when she was a kid. So like were published in the like late fifties, early sixties. And a lot of them were about families living in New York and like the kids of the families. And they lived in like Brooklyn. Some one series was about a Jewish family. So there was lots of like talk about very specific city things and food things and like, um, being Jewish, like the different religious experiences and Sabbath and things like that. Um, that reading this really took me back to. And I read this in kind of the same way where you're just like relishing all these little moments with these characters. Yeah. Um, And there isn't actually any like plot overlap. The books are really different. That was just like stories about, you know, living in New York and like the late 19th century. Um, But it brought me to that same place of just, just like reading for pure joy and discovery. Nice. Yeah. And without, I would say like a lot of underlying challenge, which sometimes yeah. is really nice. And this book can be read on a lot of different levels. And I think appreciated through an academic lens, if you're considering the like parody that's taking place too. Yeah, no, I needed a, a lighthearted one. I think the different dialects are so crucial, and the way that Joan Aiken writes them is just sublime. Yeah, like it's very every good. character has their own kind of bizarre way of speaking, and they're all perfect. We we mentioned earlier. I thought the funniest moment of the book was uh, the letter from Dido to Sophie, um, which is meant to convey some important information. So it's short. I'm going to try to briefly read it in Dido's voice. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Do it. Okay, and it's riddled with misspellings and just uh, wild words. <laughs> Dear Miss Sophie, <laughs> I thanks you all again for the dress. It's real prime. First new dress I ever was give. Simon has been kidnapped in a ship. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Justin is going too for the lark. I like Simon and it isn't fair he should be all alone. The ship is the dark dew. Yours respectfully, Dido Twight. Oh, Dido. <laughs> so good. I, so the transition from first new dress I ever was give to Simon has been kidnapped yes. in a ship. Kidnaped. <laughs> kidnaped. The way in which information is dispensed throughout the book, like not just by Dido, like we've mentioned in a few other moments, characters just love to like blow the minds of the people around them Mm -hmm. by suddenly (laughs) giving away these secrets. Yeah. (laughs) 
in such a casual way. Like Mrs. Buckle does it when they're on the island and Justin's like, oh, I just like barely made it out of the sea. I'm almost drowned. And she's like, oh, I know your your drowned face. You're my son. Yeah. And he's like, what? <laughs> Sorry, what now? Who are you? <laughs> and she's just so like business-like about it that there isn't even a moment for him to really be like, no. Right. I mean, and he tries to resist at first and be like, how do you know that? I don't know you. And she's just like, oh, you're just the little baby that I rocked on my knee all those mornings. How would I not know you? And then he's just like, okay. He just, yeah, he just submits. <laughs> like, okay, you're, you're my mom. Buckles my so dad. Much, <laughs> it makes so much sense that Justin, which again makes me think of Prince Justin from Hell's Moving Castle. Such a funny name to throw into like a sort of old timey fantasy setting. Yeah. Um, it's so apparent that he is not meant to be anyone special. And I'm not saying here that like you have to be aristocratic to be special or that being from a noble line means you are. Um, but he's just like very basic yeah. <laughs> the entire book. And he wants he to be really, basic. He likes that. Yeah. He wants to just be a dude. He doesn't want to do art. He doesn't want to have dukely responsibilities. He just wants to like kind of chill and be a kid, which he hasn't really been allowed to be. He has to be with horrible Buckle all the time. Yeah. And who, the really fact that this one man is like ruining children's lives across London throughout this book is just so funny. Just by being like a mean tutor and like just a jerk showing up in places you don't want him to be. Not in like truly traumatizing ways, you know. But still. Um, so it just, it, no, but it, it just makes for a funny villain character. Yeah. Where like all the kids are like, ew, buckle. buckle. We hate him. <laughs> yeah, he's Get a citywide scourge. <laughs> yeah. The scourge of the buckle. Um, and just everything about, from the opening scene that you were talking about, Mads, when Simon is trying to enter London and find the Twites precedence. <laughs> First, an old man like waylays him and is being like, Oh, Rose Alley, I knew a rose once. She was beautiful. <laughs> Just totally so like, like uh, random. Okay, okay. And then a, you know, mischievous urchin comes and steals his letter out of his hand and throws it into the river. And then a young woman with a beautiful bonnet with vegetables on it um, gives him fake directions. Um, but like the succession of goofy characters, it also reminded me of, we've talked before about how you and I and our brother Patrick would play a game we called Detectives, where one yep. of us would play every character and then you just, you know, parade them past the the other two who had to try to figure out the quote-unquote mystery. <laughs> a, a better uh, name may have been International Fantasy Detectives. <laughs> or no, sorry, not International, Interdimensional. <laughs> interdimensional Fantasy Detectives. No, you're right. That's much more evocative of what actually went down. Or like Dungeons and Dragons for kids with zero rules. Like that was kind of it. We were just taking turns being DM. I don't remember one day where we stood out. But we were LARPing. Because we were doing we were it laughing. with our bodies, yeah. yeah. We we stood out by the road, and we we were like, it's a conspiracy because people keep slowing down when they passed our house. 
And thinking about it now as an adult, they were probably slowed down because there's three there's three children standing like right there looking like, like they're gonna run into like the street. In the road. Yeah, yeah. staring you dead in the eye. I'd, I'd slow down the- too. <laughs> No, and it makes me, I think that's one reason why this would be so fun to experience as a kid, this book too, because we, we went through life, like coming up with those plots and those fantasies and like, we, yeah, would, wouldn't breathe if we were in sight of a graveyard and like, we're constantly coming up with ways that like, we were only one step away from, you know, the spirit realm, whatever that might mean. And here the plot is real. Like all the people that seem like they're doing evil things that seem like they're black hearted, they actually are. And literally everyone in the Duke and Duchess's employ is planning to kill them and overthrow the king. Yes. <laughs> so there's like some wish fulfillment there of, hey, it all made sense. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I do think there's also a nice. I don't know. There's a good balance of like danger to children, but children making it out safe and comfy in the end, which as a young reader, you like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Except for Dido, who is presumed dead. I can't believe she did that. Yeah. But when she shows back up, it's going to feel like, yes. So animals, just like animals in this book. The approach of naming a donkey, Caroline, is so sweet. I love that for a donkey. It is like It just feels right. And Caroline is so good to Simon and is like her one, his one, you know, true ally at the beginning when he is, he feels like he can't trust anyone and he doesn't know what's going on. Like, imagine coming to London and the person you were supposed to meet isn't there, but everyone's just gaslighting you and you're yeah. seeing signs everywhere that he was there. And they're like, no, no, no. And I don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> I would feel horrible. I think once he gets to the Academy, um, Monsieur Furneaux is much friendlier and becomes a, a, you know, a support and mentor to him. But to have Caroline there to lean on literally and metaphorically is very important. He initially is having her stay at the, um, the, I was going to say the milkers, but like the, the dairies. Um, I'm scared of the milkers. I don't want to go there. She's <laughs> um, staying at the dairy. And then he sees her being forced to carry way too much milk and being whipped by a switch um, by one of the dairy folk. And he's just like, come on, you're not doing anything nice for my donkey and you're getting work out of her in the bargain. So yeah. I'm glad he gets Caroline out and into a, into a better spot. Yeah. And does the kitten ever have a name? Is the kitten a, enough of a character to get one? I don't really I don't know think. if it does. I think so. it's just the kitten. Um, and he is always like giving the kitten bread and milk, which is very cute, but makes me worry about the kitten's nutrition. It's so not good for again, it's good that the kitten is able to become a rat catcher because there's plenty of tasty rat to go around. Tasty rat, protein. tasty kittens London rat. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about magic systems combined with the question of. Is this fantasy? 
Um, because I think it's interesting to consider the ways in which there are sources of magic mm-hmm. and the supernatural um, in this series because it takes a much subtler approach than a lot of series. And you're not going to get things here like witches, wizards, dragons, but at the same time, there is a sort of like (laughs) alternate steampunk dystopia brand of magic. Yeah. What what did you think about it? Um, Well, I I definitely think it's a fantasy because it's a children's fantasy um, because the way in which the plot and the characters work together and move from place to place and it's all just very serendipitous and uh, um, uh, Sophie's and the Duchess's tapestry seems to be magical. Um, (laughs) Yeah, who knows what's going on with that thing. um, And then the wolves are not normal wolves they they are monsters they attack and destroy in ways that wolves in reality do not do like they're organized in a different way because saying organized about wolves is like that is true in reality and that they have their families mm-hmm. that and like a structure that they live within um but but these wolves are evil they <laughs> instead of choosing to just um hunt to eat and then take right. care of their family these wolves choose violence because they like <laughs> violence <laughs> wolves choose violence. <laughs> no, they do. They want and they want to menace people. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, yes, I I'm sure they're going to be, you know, chowing down and like ripping bodies apart, but but more than that, I think they want to create a an atmosphere of fear. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that they come out at night, I think God, it was so brilliant for her to create this alternate reality where, like, this is the main change. Like, there's just wolves. There's There's just a lot of wolves. They're terrifying. They come out at night. (laughs) They will eat you. It's interesting having reading this after the wolves will be chased and kind of thinking about the differences in tone, especially when it comes to fantasy and the supernatural between the two because to me and it's been a few years since we read wolves will be chased so i'm i'm you know a little fuzzy on specifics but i definitely remember that there was more of a like there's a reason i thought of simon as like a wood nymph like it felt like there was a natural power that was sort of at work and the wolves are very much described as like hell beasts Mm -hmm. like they have like red eyes yeah. and carry like a sort of feeling of like cold and hopelessness with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like you were saying, they, they're not real wolves. Right. There's something much more sinister. Yeah. And then the the plot itself, like the homecoming of a lost um, heir and heiress, like is a very common fantasy story type as well. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And there is, and it feels like there's some magic mixed into all of that too. And the fact that we get components like the, the hair tuft, Mm -hmm. um, and these like baked in pieces of lineage that, I mean, it's not 
realistic, obviously, mm-hmm. but it's more than unrealistic. It is. It's fantastical. more than nonfiction to have to have a white tuft under your dark hair that's like hidden at the nape of your neck. I love it when Sophie's like, I didn't even know that was there. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. At that point, you probably didn't have two mirrors to like put one in front of the other and yeah. see the back of your head. Yeah, totally. And if you don't Especially, have like parents who are going to be like brushing your hair and stuff like that. Well, right. Yeah. There's no mirrors at Grubles. 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 Um, but yeah, but it's, it's more. And than, I love this type of fantasy approach. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely elevated. Um, like you said, beyond fiction into fantastical. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've Mm -hmm. firmly feel this way. Like I didn't even, I only thought about it now. Like, oh, there is not explicit magic in this book. And I hadn't Mm -hmm. really thought about that before because it still felt like a fantasy book to me. Totally. You don't, yeah, you don't question it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the, uh, the, like Dickensian machinations that Joan Aiken put in also contribute to that. Um, or like, even if it has to do with quote unquote real things that people are doing, they're describing their enemies as picts and then their big guns as picked clobbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way they're going about it adds a lot of mystery. Whereas in a lot of books, their actions could be described and you could just be like, okay, so they're just trying to stage a coup and it can feel, you know, totally like dry and realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really doesn't. Yeah. And like all the weird little connections that the like Hanoverians have, um, it just, it feels like there's so much more at work. And I thought Joni can did a really, really good job with that. Her writing is really spectacular. It's a um, lot of fun. Especially like we said, her dialogue, it's so good. And writing dialogue is really hard. And especially with these characters, <laughs> Simon and Dido together, I love, it's a true, like, big sibling, little sibling relationship. Like yeah. he affectionately refers to her as brat. Um, but you can, it, it's so loving every time he says it. And the fact that this little girl who like initially is making his life miserable and as we'll get to and pretend food is constantly like dropping jam on his head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, will like stay with her for days when she has a cold and they like kind of leave her to die like she's not well she's very feverish she's like kind of losing consciousness and hallucinating a little bit and they're not even really like feeding her or caring for her um like her parents and sister just keep going to like various parties and And just leaving her at home um, so there is also that, there's also that moral piece baked in here where like, we don't have to worry about whether the plot, the plotters are, you know, quote unquote good or bad, um, because they're very obviously coded as evil in all of the ways that they treat children yeah. and other human beings and animals too. Yeah. It's an easy shorthand. Um, whereas, you know, with something like this in a more, um, adult book, you'd be like, okay, well, so these people want this king, these people want this other king, but how can, you know, how do you apply a sense of right or wrong to one king or the other, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Yeah. Like, it depends on the perspective that you're looking at. I prefer this oppressor. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. (laughs) It's like there's no... 
it's, it's just a variety of factors of like whose interests are going to be best represented right. by that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like who's going to make more money off of that guy. Exactly. So now shall we pretend food? Pretend food. The amount of food in this book is staggering and it is welcome. <laughs> when listeners were recommending this series, everybody said you got to do it like for the pretend food alone, although this series is exceptional for other reasons as well. And the volume, the speed, <laughs> the detail, everything about the way that Joan Aiken mentions the victuals that her characters are consuming it's just top notch, and I think some other fantasy authors could take note. Yeah, I loved all the food in this book. I got excited for this segment while reading this book. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, a million highlights, but we'll we'll try to get through them without this getting tedious. Although, how could pretend food ever be tedious? This makes me hungry. We start strong with Simon giving. Dido some carrots to feed to Caroline. He really wants to feed her carrots. Um, And when he comes back, uh, Dido has clearly eaten many of the carrots because there's traces of carrot on her face and trying to climb onto Caroline's back. And poor Dido, like throughout the book, Simon is giving food to his pets, to yeah, his donkey or his kitten, and then Dido kind of pops up and is like, can I have some bread? I'm starving. Of course, of course. Yeah, he has, he's always having cold ham, loaves of bread, sausages, milk. When he first meets Dr. Furneaux, he walks into his room and it smells strongly of garlic and coffee and turpentine, which... Yes, Mm. that's like perfect artist smell, I feel like. And having not been able to eat garlic for many years, and now it's back in my life, I appreciate it very much. I just hate it now. I see his physical description right here. No more than three feet, six inches That's why he's so short. He is so small, so small. At one point, Dido is hanging upside down over the stairwell, and she drops, quote, a slice of bread and jam, which landed jam side downward on his head. Just threw (laughs) jammy bread at his face. And then as he tries to grab her, she's like, ooh, you don't look half a sight. Jelly boy, jelly boy. want to call someone jelly boy i need to i don't know i'll just start calling my husband jelly boy and he'll be like why okay (laughs) it's it's funny because she's the one that really makes me think about a pixie oh totally she's just so indomitable there's so much spirit within her to the point that I, I want to talk about this in my badass lady section, which obviously is Dido. It's Dido forever. Mm-hmm. Um, when she is, you know, dying of exposure and exhaustion, when she and Simon are laying on a rock after a shape, kind of escaping from the shipwreck, partially escaping. And she's like telling little stories to him to try to keep him conscious and is shoving little raisins and salty crumbs of cheese into his mouth to try to give him some sustenance. And then she says, okay, I'm going to try to swim away and try to find help because I don't think you can move. Like she's just magnificent. A force. Yeah. 
Mr. Twite adds a gross-sounding alcohol um, to his tea called Mountain Dew, which <laughs> to us is very funny. Very funny. Uh, Obviously, you know, when you hear the phrase Mountain Dew devoid of context or branding, it's like, oh, dew from a mountain. Like, that sounds like some very cold, fresh water. Yeah. (laughs) Then when you actually consider what the soda Mountain Dew is, it's shocking. How did they get there from that? How did they get to that name? I guess literally just like thinking about dew from a mountain. I just, I just can't believe that was the end result. Well, I mean, if anything, the soda brand copied this. Thank you. Yes, Mountain <laughs> Dew owes it all to Jonah again. Black Arts uh, and Battered Sea. Yeah, especially because Mountain Dew is like fluorescent green. Like just looking at it, it's like, oh boy. I, yeah, I don't, I don't really like any soda except root beer and like once a year a Coke. So I'm not Mountain Dew's target audience to begin with, but it grosses out. It grosses me out so much. I like Sprite or variations thereof, uh, and orange soda. End of list. <laughs> Madeline likes a, the sweeter side of life than, than I do. So we have different tastes, and that's great. Later, I love it when Simon is meeting a bunch of the art students for the first time, and they're all like, we haven't eaten in days because we almost burned down our landlady's house and we're not allowed to cook there anymore. So they have like a fire that they've built up outside of the academy. That's pretty great. Where they're making hard boiled eggs in a coffee pot. And then Simon had already purchased a loaf of bread and a sausage on the way there. So he is very happy that he can contribute. And the other student named Gus says... I haven't had my grinders in a bit of solid prog for three days. The words that these characters use. I cannot get over it. My grinders in a bit of solid prog. No idea. And Simon even shaves um, using a palette knife from his paint supplies and using the lid of the coffee tin as a mirror while they're preparing their breakfast, which is just, uh, it's just very resourceful. Yeah, and it just sounds kind of nice, like, you know, you're putting together your day, and you're with your friends, and you don't have much, but you're making it work, like, you're excited. No, exactly, and I love the visual of them literally on the lawn outside of their school, um, especially with them all being, like, starving art students, and they're like, art is life, we live to paint, we're going to make eggs in the coffee pot around a fire, and then go to our duties. Yeah. The Duke eats gruel. Um, It's like his thing. He is talking to Simon and it's, I guess, gruel time. (laughs) His his servant comes in, Jabwing, and says, your grace's gruel is ready. And the duke says, you may go unless, do you take gruel, my boy? No, you are certain? My cook has a capital way of making it with white wine and sugar. No? And you can just see Simon being like, oh, no, thank you. White wine and sugar? In gruel? In porridge? I don't... That sounds horrible. I don't know. We're, we're just making trepidatious face, faces at each other, which is not going to translate to the podcast, but I don't know where you go from there. 
Jabwing also tries to betray Simon by putting a putting the Duke's watch in his pocket to make it look like Simon stole it. And then he tries to reveal it by like throwing his jacket down and being like, your grace, look, it's your watch. It fell out of his pocket. And the Duke is like, that's a hard boiled egg, you (laughs) don't. (laughs) So I love an egg stepping in and being part of some subterfuge because Simon figured it out in time. Poor Dido is only given fish porridge by her parents. This comes up multiple times and this is like why she's starving. Um, and so Simon is always trying to supplement her diet. Um, Mrs. Cobb makes poppy syrup, um, which sounds like just opium. Yeah, I think, <laughs> like she's, I think she's making opium. <laughs> she's like, nothing beats my uh, poppy nothing beats syrup. Nothing beats my poppy syrup. I was like, yeah, it's, it's opium. <laughs> <laughs> I could make a great elixir, too, if I had a little opium to yeah, throw in there, you yeah. know? We have to mention the feast that the Duke of Battersea gives to the students as a thank you for saving his life. There were but three courses. The first consisted of oysters, lobsters, salmon, turtle soup, and some haunches of turbot. This was followed by turkeys, chickens, a side of beef, and a whole roast pig. The last course consisted of veal and ham pies, venison pastries, salads, vegetables, jellies, creams, and fruit. Just a picnic, as the Duke observed. (laughs) What? (laughs) Why won't someone bring me a picnic of these proportions? I deserve it. I also enjoy a final course, including vegetables. (laughs) Yeah, because I had been worried. Seafood. It was first like came by sea and then came by land. And then, okay, fine, throw some vegetables and salads in there. Yeah, I was worried about it first because I was like, this is like 100% meat and fish. And then the vegetables got tacked on there at the end. (laughs) (laughs) At the fair, which, like you said, it's not central to the plot, but it's so satisfying that they get to go because Dido has been talking about it the entire book um, as like her one dream to go to the fair. And Simon not only through Sophie. Sophie's the one who makes the dress, but gets a dress for Dido and he organizes his schedule, which is very involved. I mean, he has what seems almost like a full-time job on top of his student work. Yeah. And then his third constant responsibility is making sure Dido is cared for because no one else is doing it. Yeah. And they go to the fair and have so much fun. Uh, Justin gets sick from the flying boats, but then he has seven ginger nuts and a glass of lemonade, which to me sounds like a really nice stomach soother, genuinely. Some ginger and lemon. What's a ginger nut? A ginger nut is, I'm pretty sure, a a ginger candy. Oh, okay. I guess it may also be the British term for a ginger snap. So it might be a ginger cookie. Oh, okay. A ginger biscuit. Yeah, no, ginger and sugar is definitely good for like nausea. Oh, yeah. Calms me right down. And they have oysters, plum cake, and ginger wine at Barney's Restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good night. 
They uh, eat raisins on the ship. That's all that Dido can find. She says, I might as well prig some peck while the going's good (laughs) and find some raisins. Prig some peck while the going's good. She also says, okay, my favorite word that she says was right in this section. She says, well, we could snibble up on now, describing them like creeping onto the main deck of the ship. And snibble up is also a phrase that we need to introduce into our vernacular. Snibble up. Snibble up. And we're almost done. I will end on prune wine. We have to mention the prune wine at the mince pie ceremony. That's prune wine. I was going to mention. So the first, you know, the phrase mince pie ceremony is maybe one you've not encountered before. I certainly hadn't. And it's said like ad nauseum in some portions of the book. It's like, what about the mince pie ceremony? We have to prepare for the mince pie ceremony. I'm going to poison everyone at the mince pie ceremony. (laughs) I'm going to blow them all to kingdom come at the mince pie ceremony. (laughs) Everything, anyone who's anyone is at the mince pie ceremony. Yeah, I don't know if this is a real thing or if it was made up for the book. It feels very whimsical. I don't think that the king of England ever went to like a random duke's house to have like winter mince pies. No, that was another (laughs) fantasy element of this book is how friendly and informal the king was with them because they are just like minor balloon. Yeah, totally. Like, why would he ever be there? Why wouldn't they bring the mince pies to him, you know? It, it's not like the king travels around doing that kind of thing. Yeah, it seemed like he didn't even have, like, a retinue. No, they weren't mentioned yeah. as being saved in the ship. But I don't know. Maybe they all got it blown maybe up. Maybe they all got exploded. Hope not. Um, but, yeah, the mince pies are actually... The poison ones are swapped out by ones that Sophie brings um, from the other hall that they were staying at. And they are mince pies that are covered in flaming prune wine. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, I don't know what that tastes like. I can't quite imagine it. I have finally tried shoe fly pie here in Pennsylvania, which is another like mystery pie to me that I'd heard a lot about. You would like it. It's just molasses pie. It's shoe good. fly? Yeah, it's called shoe fly, we think. Um, either A, because it, I could look this up and dispel it, but because it attracts flies because it's so sugary. And you have to shoe them. Or, and you got to shoo them away. <laughs> shoe fly, that's my pie. <laughs> Or it's so thick that it evokes like amber with insects crystallized in it. Like they'll get stuck in it. See what I'm saying? I just I looked up mince pie and it says a sweet pie of English origin filled with mince meat being a mixture of fruit, spices and suet. Pies are traditionally served during the Christmas season of much of the English speaking world. I feel like in much of is an exaggeration. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mince pies are still popular, but they were more of a historic food for sure. I think now they're more, it's, it's like one of those things where, yeah, you'll eat it at Christmas, but the rest of the time it's like, I mean, no one's really going to in Europe. Yeah, 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 yeah. In our house, Madeline, you've never partaken of the mince pie. <laughs> so I feel like the USA and Canada are a large portion of the English speaking world and we don't, we don't have that. 
I, no, I see what you're saying. That's true. Just arguing with the Wikipedia articles. That's, you know, that's what we're here for. That's what this podcast secretly is. Um, <laughs> wiki fights. Wiki fights. But I have to say that when I was a kid, plenty of books I read mentioned mince pies. I mean, you're not surprised, you know, that <laughs> I was reading like historical fiction and fantasy from like set around this period. Um 18th, 19th century. And I, the way that I pictured mince pies, of course, I didn't think meat was involved because now I understand that mince means finely cut up meat. And it's often a way to use up leftovers from other feasts or bits left from animals after they've been butchered. That's, and so then you that's mix what I it thought. But this when you were a kid, did you think that mince pies were meat pies? Yeah, because it says mince meat. I guess I never, or if I saw mince meat, I thought it meant like fruit flesh or something. I pictured mince pies as like chocolate and berry with like frosting on top. I mean, I just thought they had like pate type stuff in them. I also thought they'd have a mint flavor, so I don't know. I'm an idiot. Uh, again, this is the second time I've said that. Madeline's grimace. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that came from. I must have seen I something know. weird looking in like it's a cartoon like or something. I pictured it having like a striped top, like a plaid top. <laughs> if anyone knows what the heck I'm describing, <laughs> urgently, I beg you, please reach out. Dragbabiespodcast like- at gmail.com. <laughs> It sounds like the the Krabby Patty from SpongeBob, the plaid one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only plaid baked good I've ever seen. I don't know. Maybe when we do our pretend food Babetreon episodes this summer, I'll have to make a mince pie, but my mince pie. It's going to be gross and you're going to eat it whether you like it or not. Yay. <laughs> And let's end pretend food there. There is more. Oh, and beef tea. That's what Mrs. Buckle wants beef tea. to bring everyone which who is I ill or having any problem. It's just like ramen noodle broth, which I like. I think it's just I think it's just beef broth. Yeah. yeah. Um, beef tea, for whatever reason, carries a kind of gross connotation, whereas beef broth sounds delicious. Exactly. So yeah. Mrs. Buckle's just out here getting in her own way, unfortunately. Okay, I am seeing some plaid sheet cakes. Ooh. <laughs> like you can make it plaid on the inside if you put it oh, together right. And I'm also I seeing see. ones with like plaid on the top. Okay. Okay, interesting. Well, there's there's hope for me. Some yes. research. <laughs> Badass ladies. I and assume we're lady. both doing Dido. I don't Although know Sophie, who else I would do. Sophie is really cool too. I'll, I'll, I'm just going to give her a quick little shout out. We haven't really talked about her. One of our qualms with the Wolves of Willoughby Chase was that the female characters didn't have like a ton to do at certain portions in the book. And I remember one listener saying specifically that we meet uh, the most amazing girl in the world in Blackhearts and Battersea. And I didn't expect Dido when she showed up to necessarily be that person because at first she's pretty annoying. She's <laughs> but, pretty abrasive. But that's part of her charm. Yeah. And it's because she's so unaccustomed to anyone paying her even the 
even a smidgen of intention that she's just trying to like grab onto anything that she can get. Like she's, she's starved for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, but Sophie is really lovely. She's like really pulled herself up by her bootstraps and has gone from the the grooblies all the way to working for the Duchess. And even after they discover that she is herself a noble she's like okay well i'm gonna go like do the mending and she kind of like winks at the duchess when she's like wait i guess we just found this out and sophie's like i still want to help with things like i don't need anything to change yeah um yeah and it's so sweet that she spends her entire day off making a dress for dido to wear to the fair yeah that's just that's just capital yeah But Dido, let's get to our little lady, (laughs) our princess of chaos. (laughs) She is the dream. I'm going to be thinking of her as a personal role model. Like I aim to be more like Dido, just scrappy, irrepressible, endlessly energetic and devoted to the people that she cares about. And she also really got herself out of a really bad situation And I'm so grateful to her for, like, knowing her own worth. Yeah. My rating for Dido is the fair 365 days of the year. I am going to put the fair just for the sake of others living in this version of London behind, like, a a topiary like a good distance from the residential yeah. area like let's let's <laughs> keep it a, you know, a little bit of a distance so it doesn't have to completely overwhelm you and i i know that too much of a good thing is not a good thing but i think that dido could find something to enjoy every day of that fair year one year yeah, fair good one year <laughs> fair year i uh, am also choosing dido and I'm going to rate her as many new dresses as she would like to wear to the fair. And also, you know, the rest of her She could have a life. different one for every day. 365 dresses. Where is she going to put them? I can't, I can't wait to see what Dido's been up to. Yeah. The next book is called Nightbirds on Nantucket. What a name. And it sounds like she is going to awaken from her shipwreckitude. Shipwreckitude. <laughs> and then be out in the out in the ocean, out in the world, figuring things out. So that's very cool. I love that she's gonna get a chance to be her own champion of her story. Although yeah. she's kind of the champion of this one. We haven't talked about Simon that much, which is very funny because we were so intrigued by him in Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Like we were kind of obsessed with him because yeah. he like talked to birds and lived in a cave and uh-huh. ate nuts. Um, but he's he's just a sweet, you know, big brother figure here. Mm-hmm. He does a great job too. Props for everyone, dresses for everyone, fairs for everyone. That's my motto balloons today. and paintings and barges that don't sink. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> so I think that brings us to the end of Black Hearts in Battersea by Joan Aiken. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. If you'd like to see some silly little things related to the episode, you can check out our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com, our Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, and Twitter at dragonbabiespod. 
Check out my Instagram as well. It is where I post art, pictures of my plants and my dog and my cat. The handle is Doodles. P-I-G-N-D-O-O-D-L-E-S. We might have a little bit more time than usual before our next episode because Madeline's going to be traveling and I will be moving back to Washington. And then um, I'm also the moving. And then Madeline's moving. Yeah. But we'll have something. We'll have at least one episode in June for sure. Um, but I think I'm going to break tradition and just say that we don't know what that book is yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we'll, we'll announce it on our website. Um, so... Instagram, Twitter, website, we'll put it up once we pick it. Um, we need to like get our ducks in a row a little bit here and decide what we can handle. Big stuff um, happening. All good. I'm not moving away. I'm just, I have to move to a different place yeah, because different they're going to knock our house down and build luxury condos that everybody can afford. Bad stuff. <laughs> yep. Um, so stay tuned. Follow us on our socials you'll get the updates when we have the next step picked and we'll smell you later <laughs> bye i'm grace and i'm madeline until next time goodbye <laughs> <laughs>